Great to have you here today. I want to say hi to those who are online. And as I look around, I'm so thankful for this church body and the family and friends that make up uh, this community of Christ. So thankful for you and giving thanks for you uh, all week as we have approached this time of worshiping God together. I, I want to encourage you to open to our passage today, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. So you can open there in your Bibles or in your Bible apps, whatever you've got. I'm going to jump around a little bit within that passage so that you can follow along. Turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. And as you're turning there, uh, let me tell you a short story that I heard this week. It's about a grandpa who was going to his grandson's Little League game. And because the grandpa had an appointment, he had to arrive at the Little League game late. He, he drove up and he parked in the parking lot of the Little League field, and he got out and he began to walk towards the bleachers. And as he was walking towards the bleachers, he saw his grandson jogging in from the outfield. And so he said to his grandson, Hey, how's the game going? And his grandson responded to him, It's 18 to nothing. We're losing grandfather's heart sank. And all I could think to say was, I'm so sorry. But the grandson, with a really positive voice, said to his grandfather, that's okay. It's just the first inning. There's still time. (laughs) What? 18 to nothing in the first inning. Man. It may be that some of you Look at the events of the last year and you feel like in the game against circumstances, circumstances is defeating you 18 to nothing. Uh, That you are losing to life 18 to nothing right now when it comes to the circumstances that you face. And you could use a little of this young man's optimism, a little bit of hope. Maybe you could use a whole lot of hope. And the great news that we are proclaiming every week in this sermon series is that for the followers of Jesus Christ, there is all the hope in the world. In this series, Hope Rising, we are looking at a book, the book of 1 Peter, that is written to a group of people who are getting beat down by life. Uh, The people that Peter's writing to here in the book of 1 Peter, they are losing to their circumstances 18 to nothing. They are poor. Because they are Christians, they're being persecuted. Some of them are being locked in prison or even executed for their faith. They're down 18 to nothing to the circumstances of their life. And yet, when God inspires Peter to write this book, it is a book filled with hope in which Peter proclaims the hope that you have in Jesus Christ overwhelms, overshadows, outshines any circumstances that you might come up against in this life. And we've looked at that the first couple weeks of the series. In the first week, we saw that we have this amazing hope in Jesus because he has chosen us to become a part of his family. And because we're a part of his family, he has given us this astounding inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And then last week, we saw that if we want to daily live in that hope, and the holiness that flows out of that hope, then we need to intentionally focus our minds. And what did last week's passage say we need to focus our minds on? We need to focus our minds intentionally on heaven, verse 13. We need to focus our minds intentionally on the judgment, verse 17. We're going to stand before the judge. We need to intentionally focus our minds 
on the amazing sacrifice of Christ, verses 18 through 22. And our passage concluded by saying, and you do all of these things by craving the pure spiritual milk of God's word. That's where we focus our mind on all of these things instead of on the things of the world. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, on the pure spiritual milk of God's word. Now today we come to another passage that is all about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Is there anyone who could use a little hope this morning? I have taken this passage and created three headers. Three headers of hope as we go through this passage. And the first one is this. Our hope is found in building our life on the cornerstone. You know who the cornerstone is, right? Verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture. Uh, Isaiah chapter 28, 700 years before Jesus is born, is prophesying about him. And he says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You notice it doesn't say whoever believes in it. Isn't a stone an it? But, But here it says him because this is a prophecy about a man who will be the chief cornerstone. And we recognize Jesus is the chief cornerstone in our lives. And so we are never to be put to, what is the word here? Shame. We'll never experience that shame that comes with living in sin and dying in our sins. What what is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the first stone laid in the foundation of a home. And every other stone is aligned with it and is built off of it. Every stone is built upon that cornerstone. And this passage says we build our lives upon the cornerstone. We're people who believe in him and thus build our lives on the cornerstone. And building our lives on the cornerstone happens by daily relating with him. If we believe in him, then we daily relate with him. We see that in the first five words of this passage. Right? Look at the first five words of verse 4. What are those five words? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Come to him here is a Greek present participle that implies ongoing, continuous action. It's not as you come to him one time. It's as you come to him over and over and over again. Because those who believe, those who are building their life on the cornerstone, do so in relationship with him, where we come to him over and over again. We do so in prayer as we come to him day in and day out. We do so in his word. I don't think it's an accident that after reading about the pure spiritual milk of God's word in verses 2 and 3, that we come immediately to as you come to him. Because we come to him in his word and hear his voice. In his word, we are a people who build our lives on the cornerstone. And in that, there is astounding hope. But you guys, this passage also says there are people who don't build their lives on the cornerstone. And for them, there is no hope. Some people don't build their lives on the cornerstone and they have no hope. Look at verses 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. For those who don't believe in Jesus, what does he become in their life? A rock of offense. Because for those who don't believe in Jesus, the things that he says are totally offensive. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, there is nobody who gets to God except through me, that is offensive to a person who doesn't believe in Jesus. When Jesus says, you are, you're dead in your sins, and you have no ability to be forgiven, and no ability to, to, to grow and become strong on your own, it's only through me that those things that can happen. In, in our self-sufficiency, that's, that's offensive. When Jesus says there's, there's eternal punishment for sin, that's offensive. When Jesus says the entire point of life is to love God by obeying his commands, the part of us that says, no, no, life's about me, is offended by that. To those who don't believe in Jesus, he, he's a rock of offense. And people stumble over him. The book of 1 Peter is a message of hope. But it's a message of hope for those who believe in Jesus and build their life upon him as the cornerstone. For those who don't build their life on Jesus as the cornerstone, there is no hope in this book. In fact, Jesus is a stumbling stone, and they fall. That isn't us. We are a people who instead who build our lives on the cornerstone, and we receive mercy. We're those who believe in Jesus and receive amazing mercy. We don't have the ability to build our lives on the cornerstone because we're good enough or because we're worthy. It's only because of God's great mercy that we even have the opportunity to build our lives on the cornerstone. And as those who believe in him, we receive that great mercy from him. There's such good news in that because as I look at my life, it's filled with times that I've been selfish times that I've been sinful, times that I've rebelled against God and the things that he has had for me, so that seemingly every day in my sin and brokenness, I am coming before him and praising him for being a God of mercy and giving him thanks for the mercy that he has poured out upon me. What hope there is in that. Even though I'm a mess as a person, God has not treated me as my sins deserve, but instead is showing me mercy. He's showing you mercy. What amazing hope there is in God's mercy, his forgiveness, his acceptance in our lives. Our hope is found in building our life on the cornerstone. The second header of hope is this. Our hope is encouraged in building our lives together. Our our hope is encouraged when we build our lives together. Verse 5 You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a believer who is living outside of church community. There's just no such thing within the New Testament as a believer living on their own outside of the community that God has called us to. We've been saved to be a part of a living house. We're all a stone, a living stone that's getting built together into this magnificent house. And like stones in a house, God calls us to lean on each other. 
Part of the reason that he calls us together is so that we can lean on each other in the midst of the challenges that we face, like stones in a house. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 calls on us to encourage each other and build each other up. Anyone else ever need that in their life? Can, can we admit that we don't approach every day with the same amount of hope and joy in the Lord? That there are some days when our hope levels are up here, and then there's other days where we are really struggling. What, what do we need in those times of struggle? We need our fellow believers to come alongside us, care for us, love us, and maybe redirect us. And God always calls us to be the believers who others can lean on. I saw that practiced a couple of different ways uh, this week. One, there, there was a guy who contacted a couple of us, a, a friend, who said, I'm really struggling with anxiety. I, I think, you know, these hours I'm spending on social media, worrying about the politics of the world, I'm just really struggling with anxiety and worry. And he contacted us so that we'd pray over him. And so we came together and we, we loved him, we prayed for him, we cared for him. And we redirected him so that his mind would be focused where it needs to be focused. Because we all need that on certain days as believers. All of us do. I saw this play out with a couple that was hurting this week. They had experienced loss. And two other couples came around them and, and physically put their arms around them. And cared for them and prayed over them. And said, we're here for you. We're walking with you in this. That's the body of Christ. We're living stones and we're to lean on each other and encourage each other in the midst of the challenges and the hurt that we face. But when we encourage each other, it doesn't just mean, it, it does mean we care for each other when we're hurting, but it doesn't just mean that in the Bible. Encouragement also means that as runners who are all running together towards Christ's likeness, we're to encourage each other to run all the faster towards becoming like him. No, no matter what state we're in, we, we all can play that role where we're encouraging each other to say, go faster, become more like Jesus. And we're to play that role in each other's life. That's why verse 5 doesn't just say that we're living stones in a house. It also says we are a holy priesthood who are offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God has set us apart as he did the priests in the Old Testament. Uh, not pastors, not missionaries. Every believer is a priest of God, set apart in order to live in holiness and purity and to offer their lives to Jesus as living sacrifices. That's God's great call to us as a church family. What are we to be? A holy priesthood. What did he call us to last week? Be holy as I am holy. Holiness, purity, righteousness. That's what we're to be about, becoming like Jesus. Over my 20 plus years as a pastor, I've had an opportunity to have a lot of conversations with pastors about their vision for their church. It is remarkable to me how many times as a pastor lays out his vision, it has to do with things that are appealing to a worldly mindset, but not necessarily drawn from Scripture. It has to do with numbers or building updates or expanding the brand. 
But it seems to me that the call that God has for us as his people is that we're to be a holy priesthood, becoming like Christ. That's why he saved us. And shouldn't a church's vision always start with how we're going to become more like Jesus? How we're going to grow as disciples to become more and more a holy priesthood, offering our lives as living sacrifice. It may be that at some point, for some reason, you are called to another church other than Friendship Church. (gasps) Could you believe it? And if that's true, and, and you move or whatever the situation is, right? what's the number one thing you should look for in that church that you're going to go to? Are they seeking to be a holy priesthood of believers? Right? Set apart from the ways of the world. Seeking to make disciples who become fully like Jesus. What are we called to as believers? We're called to holiness. Be holy as I am holy, verse 16. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about holiness because those who have a hope in Jesus seek what? They seek holiness. That is what people who have that hope do. But what is holiness? What is it? If you look at the second bullet point here, holiness is living in alignment with the character of God. Living in alignment with the character of God. Tomorrow, You can choose to treat people with love, seeking their best. Or you can treat people in selfishness. Which way should you go? We're called to be a people who treat people with love. Why? Is it because love randomly happens to be right? Is it because love is a part of an abstract list that we're supposed to hit? No, why are we to seek to be loving? Because God is Love, right? Isn't that what 1 John 4, 8 says? God is love. And his character determines what is right, what is pure, and what is holy. And so holiness isn't about meeting some random standard out there. Holiness is about aligning ourselves with the character of God. Tomorrow, you're going to have an opportunity to either be honest with people or try and deceive them. Which way should you go? You guys know the answer to this, right? I'm not teaching anything new here. You're to seek to be honest. Why? Because God is truth. You don't seek to be honest because it's a part of some random set of rules someplace. You seek to be honest because God is truth and we're to be holy and that is living in alignment with the character of God. So when we choose whether we're going to be holy or unholy in our actions, we're not just choosing whether or not we're going to break some list someplace. We're choosing whether we're going to align ourselves with God or with the enemy. That's what holiness is all about, aligning ourselves with the character of God. God is 100% holy. His life and actions always align with his character. And he has called us to be a people who are growing in holiness, who are becoming more like him in character. Now, if you look at verse 11 in front of you there, it's going to tell you you can't do that while you're living in the passions of your old way of life, while you're living in the ways of the world. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's the third time that he has reminded us, hey, you're just here for a few years, people. Don't get too attached. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We are called to be a people 
who are built up as a, a spiritual house together, encouraging each other to leave these old ways of our passions and the flesh and to live into our new life of holiness according to the character of God. God brings us together for that purpose so we can encourage each other. Keep going. Keep going. You can do this. Keep running after Christ because our hope is encouraged by building our lives together. The final header of hope that I want to draw out of this passage is this. Our hope is shared by sharing Jesus with the world. Our hope is shared by sharing Jesus with the world. When my wife and I had been married a little less than two years, a friend of mine approached us and asked if we would be interested in buying his house. He he was moving from St. Paul up to northern Minnesota, and he had a a two-bedroom house with a finished attic that wasn't technically a bedroom but could be used as a bedroom as well, and he wanted to sell it to us in part because he thought, oh, that'd be good for them, but also, like, hey, let's do this without a realtor, and I can give you a really good deal, and I've got an assured buyer. And as we began to look at the numbers, we were like, man, sure makes a lot of sense for us to buy a house instead of continuing to rent here at the seminary apartments. We should do this. The problem was, for us, two years into marriage, we had saved up this much that we could use for a down payment. Absolutely nothing. Well, my grandmother, somehow through the family gossip line, became aware of the challenge that we were facing, wanting to buy this house but not having a down payment. My grandmother was not a a wealthy woman, but her husband had passed away a few years earlier, and she'd kind of devoted her life at this point to her grandkids and trying to help her grandkids in whatever way she could. And so she called me and said, hey, I heard through the family grapevine, through the gossip line, do you have one of those in your family? I I heard that you guys are interested in buying this house but don't have a down payment. She said, here's what I'll do. I'll loan you guys the money for that down payment and then you can pay me back in whatever kind of schedule that you want. I said, that's so generous of you. That's, you know, thanked her a million times. Well, you guys already know the problem with that. Right, you, you, You've bought a house, many of you have. You, you can't borrow money from one person in order to establish a down payment that allows you to borrow money from a second person. And so when I called my grandmother back and I said, sorry, that won't work. Now, there's no one who's going to loan us money based on a loan that we've taken out. We can't use that as a down payment. Her response was, okay, great, I'll give you the money. And she gave us the money that we needed for the down payment in that situation. And over the course of the next few years as we owned that house, people came and visited us all the time. And there were so many times that I wound up bragging about my grandmother and what she did in goodness and generosity that made that possible. After we moved out of that house and moved into our next house, I would continue to brag about my grandmother and her goodness and generosity that made us having a house possible. A few years ago at her memorial service, I couldn't help but share with the people who were there at her memorial service in California about her goodness and generosity and the difference that it had made in my life. We we had the funniest conversation when she called me to tell me that she was going to give us that money. She said, are you sure you should be buying this house? I said, why? She's like, well, your mom tells me 
Oh, okay. Now, now I'm putting the pieces together. Your mom tells me that this house costs $69,000. My grandmother lives in the most expensive part of California when it comes to housing. This house, the equivalent in California would have been $600,000. And so my grandmother is like, $69,000? What can you get for $69,000? She's like, does it have rats? She asked me, does it have all of its walls? I'm like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I finally convinced her. It's just not in California. That's the only issue here. And I loved bragging about her generosity everywhere. Even this morning, I'm kind of excited to share with you about the goodness and generosity of my grandmother that made owning a home possible for us. Because when people that we love dearly are good and generous towards us, we love to tell other people about it. Now, now my grandmother's goodness and generosity, right? It's a pale shadow, isn't it, of the goodness and generosity that God has shown to us. Calling us out of darkness and into light. Showing us mercy so that we who were not a part of his people can now be a part of his people. What astounding goodness and generosity he has shown to us. And as a result, we can't help but brag about him everywhere we go. We come to church, what do we do? We brag about him. We sing songs for the purpose of bragging about him. We pray to brag about him. During sermons, we brag about him because of his goodness and his generosity in our lives. But it's not just a church, is it? When we go to school, what do we do? We're bragging about our God and his goodness and generosity. When we go to work, what are we doing? We're, we're bragging about God and his goodness and generosity in our life, in our neighborhoods. We're devoted to bragging about God's amazing goodness and generosity that he has shown to us. We do so over and over again with our words, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter here uses a a number of Old Testament phrases that were applied to Israel to say, you're God's chosen people. Church, you're God's chosen people, and you know why he's chosen you? to receive his goodness and his generosity. And now we just brag about his excellencies everywhere we go. Because our God is amazing and generous and good in our lives. And we not only share Jesus with our words, we certainly do, but we also share Jesus with our actions according to this passage. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Did you know that the Roman authorities and the people who lived in the cities around believers referred to them as evildoers and insane? In the writings that we have, we can see that Christians are called over and over again atheists by Roman authorities. Atheists because the Roman pantheon of gods was made up of gods who had physical form. But the Christians believed in a God who was spirit, and the Romans understood them to be atheists because they worshipped a God who didn't have a physical form. On top of that, Christians were regularly referred to as cannibals because they gathered every week in this weird ceremony in which they said that they were participating in the body and the blood of the one that they worshipped. They were repeatedly called insane because they had built their entire lives on someone who was said to have got up out of the grave. Come on. And in the midst of this, Peter says, when when you're mistreated by the government, when you're mistreated by your neighbors, 
when you're mistreated by the people around you, do not return evil for evil, but let your conduct be honorable. As they treat you in ways that are evil, as they sin against you, as they hurt you and damage you, instead of doing evil back, do good deeds. Because our ultimate aim is that on the day of Jesus' return, they would see our good deeds, submit their lives to Christ, and call out to him. We are a people who share the light of Jesus with our words, with our actions. Uh, We do that in our neighborhoods. We do that in our schools. We do that at work. One way that you can do that here at Friendship a ministry that you can do that through is the ministry that you saw a video for a couple of weeks ago called Acts of Friendship. Every Acts of Friendship appointment is meant to show the good deeds of Christ as we help people with genuine needs that they have, but also to share the message of the good news of hope that we have in Jesus for our souls Why we do it. If you're interested in that, I'd encourage you to go to our website and read about Acts of Friendship. You can sign up there. I also want to share with you about a couple of exciting opportunities that we're going to have in the middle of March. On March 14th, a man named Aaron Pierce is going to come from uh, Steiger Ministries, and he's going to share with us in the Sunday morning service about being light for Jesus with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. And then if you're interested in going deeper about how to reach friends and neighbors for Jesus— We're going to be putting on a Saturday seminar following that time that Aaron's with us. And he and his brother are going to be doing this uh, seminar for a few hours on Saturday called Jesus in the Secular World about how to share Jesus within the context that we live in. And then on the Sunday that is a day after this, March 21st, Dirk and Lorna Johnson, a couple of our missionaries, are going to be here. And they're going to be sharing with us as our Mission Sunday about how we can be a part of God's great mission over there and also here in the way that we share with the people who are around us. I'm looking forward to seeing how God is going to work through us. His holy priesthood, his royal priesthood to proclaim his excellencies in the days to come. And I want to encourage us right now to proclaim the excellencies of God. I'm going to do so in prayer. I invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to do so in song together. Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy that has been poured out on us. We believe in you. We build our lives upon you as our cornerstone, and we recognize that as we do, there's such great hope and great joy that can be found in your presence. Lord, now we want to worship you, our good, gracious, and generous God, for what you have done on our behalf. We, we brag about you and brag about you some more and exalt you as the great cornerstone of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.